This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Hey, everybody. So, ever thought what was going on in the mind of the fastest growing company CEOs when they were just starting to blow up? What they were thinking as they were spinning up some of the world's greatest tech companies? How did they go from zero to working with the world's largest brands out there? Well, today, we have the chance to find out from one of North America's fastest growing tech startup founders. Hey everyone, I'm Ted, and this is Marketing News Canada. Today on the show, we have Luca Bellon. Luca is a very young Canadian founder behind GoLoot, one of the fastest growing ad tech, martech startups in North America. Tired of pop-ups, videos, and boring banners, Luca dropped out of school at 19 years old to build and power new ad experiences that he and his friends would love to interact with on the internet. Today, his company has raised over $6 million in venture capital, employs 15 plus people, and crossed the magical $1 million annual recurring revenue mark. In its first 12 months, thanks to the growing customer base of brands like Michael Kors, Foot Locker, Sobeys, L'Oreal, and Dell. GoLoot's technology is currently available on over 20 sites like Elle Magazine and Motor Trend, reaching millions every month. Luca, welcome. Hey, thank you, Ted, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, man, I mean, great story. I think it's really cool what you've done and starting at such a young age and just kind of taking the bull by the horn. So, I mean, how did you do it, man? How'd you get here? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a long journey and a long question. And uh, luckily, you know, as I always say, or as many people have said before me, uh, raising a startup requires a village. So there's a lot of people in my story. There's a lot of incredible mentors and entrepreneurs, and I'm excited to get digging with you on this today. Yeah, absolutely. So you started at 19. How did you, like most entrepreneurs, you know, usually find an issue, right? There's a gap in the marketplace and then you yeah. go. But at 19, man, I was still partying. I was still, you know, going out. I was dating my my wife at the time. And like really the business side of things was not even remotely on my radar. How did you do this? It's a, it's a good question. I mean, I think my, my teenage years and my young adult life is not absent of any party and whatnot. So I continue to enjoy life and, and, and youth as much as I can. But um, I guess, you know, I grew up in a household that was... Uh, very, very, very driven by not specifically entrepreneurship, but finance as a whole and business. I think my parents were talking business at the dinner table when we were kids, and uh, they they would they would encourage myself and my siblings to understand how money flows and you know the things we would do is like at a restaurant. My parents would try to encourage us to understand like, okay, you know, why is this meal $25? You know, do you understand the cost of the goods? If you go to the grocery store and you buy these vegetables, there's a cost to that. And then you're upselling your staff and everything else that comes with it, right? So they instilled in us at a very young age an understanding of business. And we took a lot of pleasure in trying to figure out how we could make more money with this restaurant and how do you scale and how do franchises work, right? So we would spend dinners having fun around this topic. And in my teenage years, I... um 
I ventured into the world of technology and, and not specifically digital advertising. I started off with a mobile game of my own, which was very close to my passions. And I think that's how a lot of entrepreneurs start. So with the mobile game of my own, and as I was looking for ways to monetize it, that's where I stumbled upon digital ads and, and traditional ad networks. And that opened up my eyes to the industry. I was able to identify niches and problems that we'll definitely uncover today. And boom, there I was at the ripe age of 17 years old, starting my own now digital advertising company from more or less a failed game project. Voila. Well, I mean, that's, that's how entrepreneurs do it, right? You try, you fail fast, you move on. I love that. But tell yes. us a little bit about GoLoot. Like what, what does it do? Because you explained it to me in the pre-call and I, I absolutely get it. I think it's a genius idea. And so I think the audience would really want to hear about that. Of course. And, and, and I like to tell it through the story as well. So, so we'll pick up where we left off in this introduction. Um, so at the beginning of my entrepreneurial journey uh, is this mobile game that I envisioned and wanted to launch. And it's not easy to launch a mobile game. It's not easy to grow an audience. And I think it's even harder to monetize it. And so in the effort to monetize it, right, the last part of the project, I uh, reached out to different ad networks and ad platforms. And that was just from the sort of free-spirited entrepreneur that I was, who had a lot of time on his hands and off school and whatnot. I would just, I would just dive into my project and try to figure it out. And so I, I was put in touch with the people at Unity Ads and Inmobi and AdMob, which is Google's ad network, so on and so on. And what I figured out is, most of the ad networks are actually selling me the same thing. Everybody is putting fancy words around what ultimately is a banner, a pop-up, a video, a banner, a pop-up, a video. And I was like, there's no way that my audiences are going to enjoy these ad formats. And if I don't plaster them mindlessly across my, my game experience or my site or my app, there's, there's no other way that these ads make sense. They're just not necessarily designed to be pleasing for audiences. They're just there to maximize revenue at all costs. And that was a big issue. And I was looking for ad networks that would provide something more user-driven and more meaningful. And so I started to go loot this way. And what we do at GoLoot is a very different philosophy behind digital ads, right? So we work with, as you mentioned, about 20 plus content sites today. We offer a technology that analyzes user behavior on the site. So we're primarily in the content space right now. So we're looking at users who subscribe to a newsletter, users who create an account, users who subscribe to a magazine or comment on an article, right? So these moments of really key engagement, we identify them every single day through our ad tech. And in the moment, we deliver to these highly engaged users ads that are targeted and content related, but they always come in the form of e-commerce offers. So it goes a little bit like this. If you're on a content site like Elle Magazine, and you're reading three articles in a row, then our ad experience identifies that engagement and behavior and then says, hey, Ted, thank you for reading three articles today. Here are some e-commerce offers you've unlocked and you may be interested in. And then we'll bring in some beauty brands and some fashion brands leveraging all sorts of contextual targeting, which we can get into today. So yeah, I guess a different philosophy uh, in digital advertising that stems from my ambition to build something that was user-friendly and had the user in, my, in mind, sorry, first and foremost. So that's what we do today at scale. So you have this format that you have today, but it wasn't like, oh, you saw pop-up, banner, video, and you're like, I'm going to come up with this, you know, and then you describe that. So was there a lot of trial and error? What about your process, your journey got you to create this formula 
that's going to work. And I also yeah. want to hear about how that benefits advertisers. It's a good question. So I, these are two good questions, in fact. So you're right. I mean, what I'm pitching you today is the mature developed version of, of, of this idea. But at first, I think I just sat in front of a whiteboard and I, and I was asking myself, like, you, you know, what do you and your friends want from an ad? Like, it's definitely not mindless, you know, popping up or placements. It, it has to be more tied to the user experience. That was my initial instinct. I was like, it has to make sense with the behavior that I'm doing right now. Um, and so that's, I first came up with this sort of gamified approach where I thought, okay, if it's advertising in the space of content, it should be encouraging me to read more articles or to create an account or to subscribe to newsletters, so on and so on, right? It should be tied to my core behaviors and it should be leveraging my engagement to then introduce advertisers when I'm most attentive. It's, it's ridiculous to just put a banner on top of the article. You don't even know if I'm watching this, reading this, if my phone's down, like you don't have the nest, you know, you don't have the right metrics to know if I'm actually really attentive, but if I can attach this to engagement, then I think I have something very valuable. And then the next layer was, okay, you know, having the opportunity to advertise to someone who is captive and attentive is a privilege. So how do we encourage our advertisers to make the most out of that? And that's when we came up with the concept of we'll only promote offers and discounts and coupons that will please the audience, that will have a real impact on their day-to-day -day life as a consumer not just a, and I always use this example, not just a picture of Justin Bieber and Calvin Klein underwear. There's a space for that in the digital ad landscape, but it's not our space. We believe that I'd much rather earn the benefit of shopping at a 10% or 20% discount at, Cal at Calvin Klein by being engaged in content experiences that are relevant for Calvin Klein. So it was an iterative process, uh, even started off at its roots in the gaming space and then evolved to content where we saw a bigger need and a bigger gap. And um, now here we are today with a more mature version of the product that's, by the way, still evolving and growing. Um, and then to answer your last question, maybe a little more quickly, uh, the, the benefit for advertisers is twofold. You know, we deliver significantly more performance than standard display ad formats. You know, uh, the average CTR across all of our ad experiences on the internet today is about 3.4%, which is compared to standard display, like, I don't even know, I don't even do the math, like 30 times better, if not more. Um, and, and we even have some behaviors where we notice that about 40% of users will interact with the ad after being, you know, introduced to Goldwood experience. So we're, we're leveraging engagement in a way that's never been done before, which translates into a lot more clicks and performance and interactions with the shoppers than what uh, advertisers have been able to buy before. And then the second thing that is very interesting about our model is we are purely performance driven. So we don't sell CPM campaigns or awareness campaigns. We monetize meaningful interactions for brands. So if users click to be redirected to your site, if they redeem your offer with their email, if they complete a transaction, or if they send the offer to their SMS, these are the kinds of events that we charge brands for, not just a meaningless CPM that sometimes is hard to justify. And again, it's another topic you and I could talk about. So yeah, we could definitely talk about that all day long. Okay, yeah. so before we get into that, I mean, I have a teenage daughter and, you know, like the traditional suburban dad, I want my kid to go to school and do all that kind of stuff. Yet you hear all these tech geniuses drop out of school going, no, mom and dad and all this kind of stuff. And so 
obviously you are still learning. You, you just talked about that, but how did you, how do you start, a, do a company that is probably more successful than 95% of the business out there without <laughs> any actual formal training? It's, uh, it's, just, it's, it's a crazy question. And I wish I had the full recipe because if I did, I would have done it earlier. Um, but earlier, earlier, what are you talking <laughs> about? Like you're, you're like, you were born before you're, you're, you're like a alpha or you're, you're alpha or are you still, no, Gen I'm Z? Gen Z. you're still, you're I'm still, still Gen Z. Gen Z. Okay. All right, all right. Yeah, yeah. Luckily. Um, no, no, that's a good one. So I think, look, um, there are two dimensions to your questions. And I think one of them is super important to address. I, it's the dropping out of school part. A lot of people put um, emphasis, especially parents looking at their children right now, like, oh, you know, my, my child may be entertaining these conversations or they are influenced by social media figures who are like, I'm making six figures a month by drop shipping on Shopify, <laughs> all mm -hmm. the stuff that mm -hmm. we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's important that I think role models introduce the real story behind why they dropped out of school. And for me, and I think for a lot of other people, I was able to do both school and my project for the longest possible time. And I maintained my education for as long as I could. And the only KPI that matters is whether or not you're self-sufficient and that you can mitigate risk, in my opinion. So what that means is if you're studying in your business or any other entrepreneurial venture is not you know, sustainable enough to fulfill your needs as a person to put a roof over your head and pay for your own food, then you're much better off in school and taking off the more conservative path that will guarantee a form of income. In my context, I waited until the business was at a point of we had raised money. I was able to pay myself a salary and my parents were clear as soon as you drop out of school, they don't, they don't want to support me anymore. And, and it wasn't because they, they hated me or whatnot. It's just, that's the transaction that we have as a family is if you're not studying, you go on your own and you put a roof over your own head and you feed you yourself. And so I had to wait until the business was mature enough to be able to make that difficult decision. And even when I dropped out of school, I continued my education. I pursued some part-time stuff until it just became overwhelming. Mark Zuckerberg, which is someone that I, I continue to look up to, not for everything, but for some stuff, <laughs> is uh, is someone who did the same thing. And I think his his story is like, glorified but in reality like peter thiel had invested money in facebook before mark zuckerberg officially dropped out of all courses at harvard like he was still studying on the side until the business became so big and had raised money that he just couldn't do it anymore it wasn't this crazy risky entrepreneurial decision that sometimes the media paints it at so paints it as sorry so yeah that's one thing um now the second thing about you know formal training look i think you don't necessarily learn entrepreneurship in school. You can learn work ethic in school, and that's the gist of it. I think school provides a great opportunity to have access to knowledge, but in today's world, there's knowledge everywhere. There's knowledge in books. There's knowledge in AI, ChatGPT. There's knowledge in on the internet. There are mentors that provide knowledge for free. There are podcasts. You can learn just as much from a pure knowledge standpoint than sitting in, in class. But school does provide work ethic and a methodology that is really essential in the workplace and will help you succeed as a person. If you're fortunate enough to have mentors and parents and people who can give you that same uh, structure, then I think you can combine both to be wildly successful on your own. But then again, never at the cost of, 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 of your own, uh, you know, of not being self-sufficient and never at the cost of not having any money to look 
after yourself or your family. So yeah, that was, that was my take on it. I had thousands of people help me along the way. Um, I focused on what I was good at, which is not necessarily building software, but rather building product and design and then sales. So I had to find a CTO who was well-versed in technology and a lot more competent than I am. And I had to find a product lead that was far more competent than I am. And I just said, guys, if you guys do your thing and I do sales, I think we're going to crush it. <laughs> and, and that, that's, that's been, that's been our mindset since the beginning. And we continue to invest in that today. So are these all, you know, friends of yours? Are these all C's like you said CTO, right? I don't know yeah. any early 20 year old CTOs or is it because, you know, I was, I was the CEO of my company. Like, so just like you, I, I actually dropped out of business school. I did get a degree, but I didn't finish business school. Cause like you said, like a lot of entrepreneur stuff is kind of school of hard knocks and you kind of learn it along the way with mentors, yeah. books, et cetera. Yet, you know, for, for us, I mean, I didn't, I had zero contacts, right? So uh -huh. yeah, my, I had a COO who's my business partner is my age, but like, we didn't know anything, right? We just kind of like build the plane while we fly it. So, or, is that the is that the approach that that you have, or or did you actually find some seasoned folks out there? I, I did find the seasoned folks out there. I'm actually the youngest person at the company, like by far. And I think that the second youngest person is my brother, who's in our finance department, and he's 27. And then it's all in their 30s and 40s. So I am our youngest employee. Um, you know. My my journey started off really, really young at, at 16 years old. So technically, I have been doing this for seven years now. Mm -hmm. And um, I think a big difference between my journey and what other young entrepreneurs are going through as well is I was laser focused. I There was only go loot. There always has been only go loot. Nothing changed. I never had interest for any other project or uh, field of expertise. It was always digital advertising and go loot and that's it, that's all. Mm -hmm. And then you compound your network, you compound your knowledge, you compound your ability by staying so laser focused for seven consecutive years. At 16, I went to work for a mobile game studio in Paris. I'm French. I mean, my family's French speaking from Montreal. So this opportunity came my way and I took it for free. I left Montreal in the summer, went to work in Paris, uh, was staying over with my cousins over there. So I have family in Paris. It was an easy transition for me. Again, I knew the language, so it made it even easier. And then the, the CEO of that digital mobile game studio took a liking for me and I was trying to pitch in my project and my ideas and I discovered UI UX, I discovered development, I discovered project management, I discovered monetization. Like they introduced me to a bunch of stuff over the summer. And when I came back to Montreal, he started introducing me to a bunch of people. And again, by staying laser focused, I went from one intro to the other until I crossed path with my CTO, Jacques, um, way before the project had raised any money. And same for my CPO, head of product, Alex. and. Then Pierce, who's our head of sales today, uh, came along the way a little bit later in the journey. But again, it was all from this compound networking effort, staying focused in my vertical and in my industry. Um, and, and yeah, I think I'm going to end this by saying I, my story as a young entrepreneur helped me a lot. And I think a lot of people were like, oh, this is a 18-year-old kid or 17-year-old kid, whatever, who has this, this great idea and he's ambitious and he's minded. And I would be, I was the kid that followed up like 19 times with you over text message over four consecutive weeks. If you, if you were not replying <laughs> to me, like I was 
determined to get my meeting. So they were like, hey, this kid's crazy. He's determined. He has a good idea. You should meet him. People were impressed by the age. They were impressed by the ambition. So it did unlock a lot of opportunities. And yeah, I followed through. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Yeah, I mean, I love I love that. I mean, I was reading an article, uh, I can't remember which which blog I was reading, but they said, you know, the dif- difference between successful people and very successful people is that successful people know how to say no extremely successful people only say almost only say no right because you're so focused on the task at hand and i really appreciate that and the determination oh my goodness i think most entrepreneurs have that i i really appreciate that for sure I, i wanted to ask around the you know um compounding network so you got these folks but you're the youngest by far it's great that you got the contacts, but how do you turn them into someone that's going to work well with you, but also for you? And what kind of leadership skills did you learn from that? Because that is something that I think a lot of us uh, in our careers from time to time will bump into somebody who ends up being uh, quite a bit older than us. And now they're reporting to us. What is your take on that? That's a good question. So um, I, I, I always pay their people from the beginning, right? So nobody, this is not my story. And there are other entrepreneurial stories where uh, people jump ship and join a venture without any form of income and whatnot. This was in our our case, you know, by, by luring in these highly competent experts in their field, I knew that I had to put some sort of income on the table so that they could support their own families. You know, these guys and girls, they were somewhere else in life. I wasn't like, I was a kid living with my parents, but some of them had kids and it was just like a different conversation. So I always told them that I could bring together enough fundraising from angel investors or VCs or whatnot to bring this, what was now like a mutual vision of ours and pay them a full-time salary that maybe wasn't exactly what they were making, but it was more than enough. And all of them were interested in supporting me uh, and, and, and this idea that, you know, if they were given a million dollars to build their own company by this random 19-year-old kid who came around and figured out a way to raise it, they would take it. And mm-hmm. it was the opportunity of a lifetime to do it. So um, it, it, it was that chicken or the egg scenario where I convinced the talent and these incredibly competent people that have been with me and stuck with me for now years to join by telling them that I was able to bring funding together. And then I turned around and I spent months, if not over a year, uh, courting investors and telling them that I had brought together, you know, an incredibly competent CTO who had experience in our field, had managed over 180 developers, blah, 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 blah. And that guy, Jacques, who's our CTO, was like jumping on investor calls with me. And he was like, I'll quit my job tomorrow if you went this check. Like, I'm all in. So this was my approach and my strategy. So it started off by providing them with some form of income that would make this entrepreneurship experience a little safer for them, uh, which justifies, you know, having really, really good talent on board. And I was taking zero nada for myself, like zero. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but then again, I could, I could figure it out because I was so young and I, you know, 
and my life was cheap overall. So, <laughs> well, your the, your lifestyle, your life itself is not cheap, but yes, absolutely. Yeah, the, lifestyle. The lifestyle I, I remember I remember when I started the company, I was 22 and I was thinking, man, if how much money do I need to save if I had to live on 3 months of mac and cheese and you know, all I had to do was mm-hmm. pay for an internet, mac and cheese, that's it. Maybe go out to to watch one movie with my girlfriend. That's it. And it came up to be like a a, a decent enough number, but it wasn't scary, right? Like like and so that was something that I think motivated me. I just, I always had that n- number parked away and then away I went. Okay. So let's that's get back a, to, let's, let's, yeah. let's get back to go loot. So, okay. So now you raise the funds, you got all that kind of stuff, but how do you do your own marketing and how do you attract magazines like L? How do you attract folks uh, like customer base of brands like Sobeys, L'Oreal, Dell, you're on magazines of Motor Trend. What do you do to do that? Because it's not a long span of time that you attracted these heavy hitters, global heavy yeah. hitters. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, of course, our network is is we have a dual network and a marketplace. So we 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 cater an offering to advertisers who represent our revenue. Uh, they they spend some of their advertising budget on our platform, which we then distribute back to our content publishers. So I think there there is two different acquisition strategies here. One is on the content side, and the other one is on the uh, advertiser side. Um, holistically, however, we, you know, this is also one of the reasons why I started the business. We jumped into an industry that was in dire need of innovation, and hadn't seen anything new, let alone a 22-year-old founder in decades. And we realized very quickly that brands were incredibly desperate for something other than a pop-up and a video and a banner at a fixed CPM that was always hard to measure if whether or not they were making a positive ROAS and Facebooks and the programmatic black box. And then, you know, when I started the business, com- you know, combined this existing uh, dissatisfaction from the customer with, you know, Apple killing the IDFA in its ecosystem, the erosion of third-party cookies on Safari and Google Chrome, Facebook's declining ad revenue. It's like this incredibly scary period for brands who were just looking for something else. And the only thing that came to mind was TikTok. So we were introducing ourselves as an alternative in Canada, at least, and, and we continue to be you know, predominantly in Canada. So we were introducing ourselves as an alternative in a time where our customers desperately needed it. In order to get ourselves in front of these brand customers, at first we uh, we used a lot of, again, disruptive B2B strategies. If you go on our LinkedIn page, we posted a lot of LinkedIn content and like funny LinkedIn content, like vlog style. We were, there's a lot of consumer brands that do it, but nobody's doing it in the B2B. We were documenting our journey as a startup and fundraising, and we still do it from time to time of like the ins and outs of building our own company. And that got us a lot of traction, like a lot of C-level executives at some brands took a liking for our story and became interested in what we were doing. And my CMO was always a big fan of the uh, story set, uh, facts, tells and facts tell and story sells kind of mindset. So we were pushing hard on, we're a hustling startup, young founder, we're disrupting your space, you know, chime in, listen to us. Let's be real together about what we're disrupting here. So that got us a lot of inbound, a lot of traction in Montreal, Canada. We grew an audience and a following on LinkedIn quite quickly. We got picked up by local media. People started talking about my story. So that was the 
spark that we needed to get some brand to buy into our network. And now we have, of course, a sales team that's agency facing. We have a lot of relationships and partnerships with the larger agencies, and it's how we get most of our business today. And these agencies still buy into that story. They still buy into this disruptive mindset that we have about advertising that is very unique and niche. We don't pitch the same way. We don't do lunch and learns the same way. I always tell my sales team, like, let's take it to the next level. And we have agencies who come to us and say the craziest thing a vendor has done for us is like, give us pens and a pizza. And I'm like, are you crazy? <laughs> you guys are spending $750,000 on our network. Like, there's no way we're doing pens and a pizza. We're going to try to do a rooftop VIP event for all of your planners to come and meet with our team and we'll get a cool DJ and we'll try to be disruptive in our approach to build that relationship to show you that we're not only disruptive at the planning level, so we can be disruptive at the ad level as well. So that, that continues to be our philosophy. On the content side, it's a little bit easier in the sense that, you know, these content platforms, again, they were looking for alternative you know, ad formats and, and the market timing was just very, very, very right for our solution. But then anyone who has ad spend and budget is someone that they will be willing to listen to. So the real chicken in the egg race is, do you have brands, do you have demand? And if you do, most content platforms will listen to you and will be willing to partner up with you, assuming that your technology makes sense, that you're disruptive, that you deliver more performance and whatnot. So it only took one use case for us, which was with MTL blog, uh, locally in Montreal, my CMO used to work for that company. So when he left to join us, they were the first ones in line to try us out because they loved him and trusted him. We built a use case. We took that use case and just sold it to everybody else, telling them, Hey, we have a lot of budget brands are buying into this. We can give you money. You know, how much volume can you give us? And we've been scaling ever since we went from 200,000 impressions a month in January of this year to over 10 million a month in November. That's like 1,900% growth in the span of 19, 1,900% growth, yeah. sorry, in the span of like nine months or 10 months. So hopefully by the end of next year, we're crossing that, you know, 50 to 100 million mark in monthly impressions. That's where hopefully I would want my company to be. All right. So I started this conversation off with, you know, ever thought what was going on in the mind of someone that's basically building a rocket ship while <laughs> flying it. So what's going on in your mind right now? I would imagine there's like, you're saying, oh, we've, we've done 1900% increase from in what, in 10 months, 10 and a half months. In and volume, yet you're yeah. like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to do this again. And so how do you do it? How do you keep up? And, um, like what is going on in your mind, your mind right now, your brain? Um, there's a lot of stress. I'm, I'm very tired. I, I work a lot, of course. Um, but, but I think what keeps us running and, and pushing forward is this incredible amount of traction that we are getting from our customers and from our publishers. And there are just so many brands that we can work with and are excited to work with and can provide our services to that every day brings a new opportunity. And that's really what keeps us all awake and going. Um, so we, challenge ourselves at Golu to never fix the goalpost. And that starts with the product market fit. I don't think that product market fit is something that you achieve and then scale on. It's something that you should be relentlessly pursuing every single day, assuming someone's doing something better than you at every second of the day. And a lot of companies, in my opinion, who fail, think of like the BlackBerry in Canada, 
fail because they become complacent in their product market fit. They think they have the best phone out there. They stop thinking about what's next and then suddenly they fail. Great companies like Apple build cars that never see the light of day, which is true, right? In the past decade, Apple has been running a sidecar project well, that a is secret. not even yeah, it's, like, it's like the world's worst kept secret, right? Yeah, like everybody knows, but it's like a secret. But I think the, the fundamental lesson from that is even if you own 54% of the mobile phone market share and you're worth $2 trillion, you're in a relentless pursuit of what's next. And you need to apply that even at the a million a year in revenue level to be like, okay, guys, great. We have an awesome ad unit. It performs well. We have a great contextual targeting technology. What's next? What is this AI thing that's coming our way? So we're awake every day thinking that our company is going to die and someone's going to do something better than us. And oh, how can we, re how can we replace it and make it better? Although, as you say, we take a second and we look back, we've been growing so quickly, you know, we've raised so much money and, and want to raise a lot more. And we have a lot of passionate investors behind this, but that's not enough. And that's what's going through my mind every day. And I think that's how you can keep afloat and, and keep growing as a founder and as a business. Voila. That's say voila. I like that. All right. Hey, so uh, you're a busy man and you're you're going off to another thing. I know it's late over there in, in Toronto. You're in Toronto now, right? So I am. Yeah. Let's uh, let's ask a few few rapid fire round questions and we'll kind of wrap it up here because I think you've given us a lot of insight. I've learned a ton myself. I appreciate but let's, it. Thank you. Let's start with the, you know, continuous improvement stuff, right? So give me the top book that you've read or blog or podcast that you've listened to that's really made a difference in the last 12 months for you? Oh, in the last 12 months is a big question. Um, I thought you were going to be asking more long-term. Uh, last 12 months, my my book is actually a reference from my brother that I'm on the verge of finishing right now. It's called Blue Fishing, and it's an awesome book about relationships and how to take care of your people and your network and how to scale those relationships. And I highly recommend it to anyone who is in the business of selling, which is the business of everything. So that's my number one book right now. See, I'm learning everything every day. Like I've, I've from you, like I'm all the time. I'm just, you know, and so I got the, I'm going to download, download that book. Is it a download or is it an actual book? It's, I mean, I'm reading the actual paper book because I spend too much time uh, in, front in front of, of screens. Screen. Yeah. So I'll, I'll finish it. Uh, I'll finish it by the end of the year, but it's called Blue Fishing, the Art of Making Things Happen. And the author is Steve Sims, who is a phenomenal entrepreneur. Uh, who is actually in the business of making things happen. So you mm -hmm. need to hear about his story and you need to hear about his, his network building skills. I think any um, salesperson or entrepreneur should. Yeah, that's great. I'm reading um, Exponential Organizations right now from uh, nice. Peter Diane Mendes or whoever else was writing it. So that that's kind of a cool book. All right, cool. Uh, what music are you listening to given you're in front of a screen all the time? I'm assuming you're one of those like listen to music and do work. I do. Yes. A uh, thousand percent. My Spotify listening hours are terrifying. <laughs> it's like I listen to music uh, every waking hour of the day. Um, I'm, I'm very agnostic when it comes to music. I, I'm not afraid to say that I appreciate pop music a lot. I listen to a lot of the mainstream artists, um, whether it's like the weekend here in I mean, here in everywhere. I was going to say in Canada, but like everywhere, the weekend is huge. Um, I like the weekend. I like Justin Bieber. I like Tate McRae. I'm very basic in terms of my music taste, but I will also say that I love French music where I come from. I love French rap more than English rap, quite frankly. Wow. So I listen to that a lot as well on the side. And uh, yeah, I'm a piano and guitar player. So when it comes to these instruments, 
I am a huge fan of the modern composers, not necessarily classical composers. So people like Ludovico Ainodi come to mind who are behind some of the great movie soundtracks that we are all a fan of. So that's my music taste. Wow, man. Okay, so favorite restaurant you had when your parents were telling you, hey, let's let's dissect the business model. Which restaurant was this? Um, I think the most fascinating models for me were always the franchises. Uh, so it wasn't necessarily like your local restaurant or whatever. Like it wasn't the, the, the Nobu's or any of the fancy places. It was more like, you know, the traditional franchises like Tim Hortons in Canada and trying to understand how does it even make sense that we're going through this drivery mom and it's $8 for a full meal where when we go to the restaurant together, there's no way we get out of here without a $50 bill. So it's trying to understand those economics of scale, trying to understand how they make margins on cheaper costs of goods sold and how do they scale a brand in a franchise. These were the most fascinating products for me. I think the founder as a movie, the Ray Kroc story behind McDonald's, it's an yeah, incredible movie. Great movie. It crystallized, it crystallized my passion and, and business acumen for that space, which I haven't executed upon yet, of course. I'm not in that industry, but that was that was the thing that I found most fascinating in the restaurant world. What do you want to say to the your set? What was it? 14, 17, 16? However old you were. I, mean, what, I started what, everything 16. Yeah. 16. All right. What what do you so that was what seven years ago, six, seven years ago? Yeah. If you had a time machine, you go back in time, what would you tell young Luca? Uh, it's, a, it's such a good question. Um, I would tell him, um, this might sound a bit controversial, but I would, I would tell Lucas, don't, don't be ashamed of wanting to be successful. And I think especially, maybe this is not as true in the U S so depending on where our listeners are, are, you know, chiming in from, but in, in, in Canada and in Quebec, there is, there is a, a certain culture that exists where people don't look upon positively any entrepreneur who's in it for the money and wants to make a lot of money. And it's not necessarily something that we value in our society here. Uh, you have to be pursuing entrepreneurship because you have, you know, you're in it for the greater good. And my dad always said, you can, you can use the greater good to make a profit or a profit to make the greater good happen. And it's the same outcome, right? So I was more a proponent of the latter where I believe that you can have a great business and make a lot of money. And it's a, it is a valuable and honest and very, very positive thing to pursue. And then you can use those resources to make great things happen and to have a really positive impact on your community. And there's nothing wrong with that. I was always to try trying to find a higher purpose to what I was doing. Was it for the planet? Was it for social justice? You know, but ultimately I did in the day, it's okay to be pursuing financial success. And it's a very, very valuable and honest pursuit. And hopefully young Lucas wasn't disappointed when he realized that, hey, you know, we're in it for that and we're going to make great things happen because of it. Amen. Love it. All right, Lugo. Hey, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you're a busy, busy man flying this rocket ship, but I wish <laughs> you and your team all the best. Thank where you. Where can we plug, plug the company? Where can we find you guys? What can we do? All that kind of stuff. I mean, we are in the B2B space, so we are where brands are, which is primarily on LinkedIn today. So you can, of course, find us on LinkedIn. Just go loot. That's G-O-L-O-O-T. Uh, you can reach out to us there. Reach out to me directly on LinkedIn. My email address is even in my bio on LinkedIn. That's how open I am. Anybody who has a question, comment, opportunity, I'm always down for a quick chat. 
Um, otherwise, of course, you can reach out to us directly from our website and my team will be in touch right away. Our primary focus right now is connecting with more brands of all sizes and really understanding their objectives for 2024. It's a tough economy. Brands want to make sure every dollar they spend towards advertising goes as far as it can. And this is where we come in. This is where we can have a real impact. So that's, that's, that's what you should be reaching out for primarily. <laughs> All right, Luca. Well, hey, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Everybody, if you could, round of silent applause for Luca. And uh, <laughs> we'll see you next time. Thanks, man. Bye. Thank, thank you, Ted. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded at the Jelly Marketing Studio, thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editor, Travis Jeffers. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.